We want to welcome you here to our uh, theological panel on social justice. I do want to let you know uh, two things. One is if you are looking to pick up extra copies of that particular issue of The Voice magazine, that they are available at the registration table. The ladies will help you with that. And so if you, uh, you didn't get a copy or you want extra copies, they've got them there for you. Um, the second thing is we have on the schedule for Thursday afternoon a uh, theological forum with Gary Gilly. Gary has read extensively on this subject and is very qualified to answer very specific questions for you. So if your question doesn't get answered or you have some more involved questions or you just something didn't get touched on that you wanted to ask, then make sure you make it to that. This is going to be very brief. We wish we had more time to do it, but We'll, we'll take about an hour here to be able to do that. But Gary's is going to be able to delve a lot deeper and it'll be dedicated to uh, speaking more on the social justice uh, issue and all the other related topics involved in that. And so make sure you uh, plan for that on Thursday afternoon. It's in your schedule. Uh, it says Gary Gilly. It's in one of the seminar rooms. It's not in this room here. So make sure you check that schedule. We're going to go ahead and get started right now, and um, I'm going to ask my brother Steve Wong. There's mics, gentlemen, right here by you. When you speak, if you could just take one of the mics. I'm going to ask uh, Steve if he would open us up with a word of prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you so much for this time that we can celebrate the benefits of the gospel. Father, we thank you not only does it save us, but it puts us into one body. Father, we uh, are so grateful that you created us in your image, each and every one of us. And Father, that through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us from, from everywhere and anywhere can be placed in the single body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, as we celebrate that today, Father, we pray that you will be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. We want to give you an opportunity to ask some questions because we know that you might have some that are more particular, uh, maybe something in your context and setting that we want to make sure we do that. So we have a floor mic here so we can pick it up for the live stream as well as recording. And so we'd appreciate it if you would go ahead and do that. So if you have a question uh, or as you formulate one during our discussion, if you just come up here and line up and I'll go ahead and, and let you ask your question when, uh, when the time allows for that. And uh, we, so we want to get you to come up as soon as you uh, feel like you want to ask the question and just wait here. You can have a line going down this aisle if we need to. But um, as you're thinking about that, we're going to go ahead and start with some, some introductions. We have, uh, why don't we, gentlemen, why don't you introduce yourself as we come around? We'll start over with Steve on the far end. Uh, let us know what your name is, uh, what ministry you served in, and, um, and actually, and the topic of your particular article in The Voice magazine that dealt with this issue. My name is Steve Wong. I've been a pastor of Fellowship Bible Church for 36 years in San Francisco, or near San Francisco, California. And uh, I wrote the article on the gospel and racism. I'm Chad DeYoung, and I'm the senior pastor at Byron Center Bible Church. We just moved there and had pastored seven years in the Chicagoland area. I wrote the article on the history of the social justice movement. Alex Granados, and I'm the uh, president of uh, Calvary University. Been there uh, six months already. Just, uh, but uh, uh, grateful to the Lord uh, to be able to come and, and join with you, uh, men, and 
be able to spend this time together. I wrote the actual um, article specifically dealing with the gospel according to liberation theology, which as what I stated in there is that liberation theology is really the term that originally was used. And then it was kind of so that evangelicals could swallow that bitter pill was began to now be called social justice. Uh, my name is Dan Fredericks, and uh, I wrote uh, this on here. We go here. Dan Fredericks, and um, um, I, I, I'm serving as executive director for UIM International, which is a ministry to uh, Native uh, people, Indigenous people groups in Canada, United States, and uh, Mexico, and in ministry outreach to Cuba and other other regions. And um, my article in the um, in the Voice magazine had to do with the biblical response, a contrast. Uh, of um, uh, the scriptures and a critical race theory and uh, attempted to give a biblical framework by which we could uh, address that within our churches. I'm Gary Gelly. I'm the pastor of Southern View Chapel in Springfield, Illinois. I've been there 46 years now. And uh, I wrote the article, the introduction article, in the sense of, uh, of the terminology, the words being used, and the, and the conversations going on today. So while I've got the mic, I'd also mention that I've written uh, six articles on uh, critical race theory and social justice. I brought about 50-some copies of these up here at the front. Uh, so if you want to get these, these are all five articles. There's a sixth article that I was planning to bring that has all the books that I have read on this subject, going back to liberation theology a couple of years ago. There's about 26 books or so in there that I've read with the links to the reviews on our website that you can get. Unfortunately, my... Uh, office gave me the wrong papers and the papers I brought was my favorite books so if you want to know my favorite books come to the theology thing and I'll give you a copy of that but that was supposed to go out in a couple months not this month so anyway uh, if you get one of these you can go on our website uh, totpministries.org and you can get the latest on uh, on the books and the thing is to be able to see a wide range of good books and bad books that you can actually look at a review and not have to read 26 books. Uh, but uh, I would say, just while I'm at it, that probably one of the best out to read, if you had to read one book, uh, Vody Balcom's book uh, on the fault lines is excellent. And probably one of the best, if you just had to pick one, but there's about a, there's a half a dozen to a dozen good books. But that one uh, I would recommend very highly. And I'm Richard Vargas. I wrote the introductory article that had to do with kind of pulling all of this together, as well as the article on um, hermeneutics according to identity politics. And so how that uh, is changed according to the whim of the individual interpreter, which is obviously not a good idea. All right. So these gentlemen have worked long and hard hours studying, getting to know the subject to a certain extent. I, I think that most of them would probably not say that they are experts on the issue in every detail, but they have spent a lot of time looking at the subject and studying it and reading extensively on it. And so um, some of them are more qualified to speak on certain issues than others. So when you feel like you can address that issue, uh, brothers, just go ahead and speak up, uh, get the mic and, and give uh, a reply to the question. So let me start with some questions that I've developed to get us rolling and uh, and hopefully we can hear from the floor of those of you that have some follow-up questions, if you would. When we were uh, discussing this, uh, this issue and the need for it, we were talking about whether or not we should um, address the subject as it's couched currently in our culture and in politics, 
or whether we should address it as, as Christians, strictly from the Bible, defining things from the Bible. And so we, obviously, as uh, Bible-believing Christians, we took the tack that we're going to look at it from what Scripture says and uh, not necessarily cover everything in this massive topic um, because it's, it is evolving and changing, and uh, there's a lot of issues. So uh, we didn't want to avoid, though, the practical implications of this. So what would you say about a Christian that wants to, to fight against things that we would agree are, are bad things, like poverty or inequality and racism? And... Um, Along with that question of what would you say to a Christian that wants to fight against those things, uh, are, we, are we against combating things like poverty and racism and inequality? Are we against combating those in this world? Or, or do we even deny that they exist, as some might even interpret that? So uh, what would you brothers say? Let me just go ahead and, and, and launch off on that a little bit. Uh, we wrestled with that, and, and as, as, uh, as a committee and assigned our, our, our different uh, areas of topic uh, addressing this issue, I, and, and, and from my article, I, I end up talking about the Titus, what I call the Titus template. But um, I think it's important for us to understand that um, from a biblical standpoint, we have to define um, justice and righteousness biblically as who God is in his righteousness and his justice. I mean, that's, that's where we go for our ultimate definition. And obviously God is a God of, of compassion and mercy. He's a God of law. He's a God of, 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 of justice. Um, but one of the things you find when you study scripture is you, you never have true justice without righteousness or righteousness without justice. And that's, that's by God's <clears throat> design. So we have to frame our understanding of those, these, those issues biblically. The reason I went to the, to, to the book of Titus to help give a sort of a biblical framework is that um, in the book of Titus, you have Titus uh, being instructed by Paul to have impact in, in the culture of the island of Crete. And one of the things that comes up in every single chapter is the chapters are delineated in, in, our, in our New Testament in its, in its current form. Um, in terms of the chapter divisions weren't, weren't there originally, but uh, in every single chapter, the Apostle Paul um, exhorts, Timoth exhorts Titus to encourage the believers to engage in good deeds. So in other words, um, as an entree to the gospel and impacting the culture, they were to engage uh, being a, 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 a good works force, if you will, as defined in scripture. So as we know, we are we are saved unto good works, as it says in Ephesians 2.10. So, so it, it helps us to understand that we are actually to engage the world that we're living in. And the, the Cretans, as you know, as Paul describes them to, to Titus, is they, they were by characteristic, they were liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. But it's in that environment that, that the believers were exhorted to be zealous for for good work. So we, they put the, the doctrine of Christ on display by engaging in, in all this going on in that culture in a very, very positive way, but it was a gospel impact. It wasn't getting involved socialistically as, a, as and I don't know what the, 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 the political debates they may have had, but the, the focus was, is that we, we put on display the person of Christ, Paul tell, tells Titus, to, to adorn the doctrine of Christ. Um, so there's a lot of implications there, but that's, that's all I'll say about that. But that's, 
that's um, that's where I went in that article. Is we talked about do we do we care? But we care. We we care above all people about people being treated well and to have compassion for them. But we do it out of the context of the person in, of Christ and who He is, God in His nature, um, how He defines righteousness and justice, and our call to en engage the world in in the good deeds that opens up an entree for the gospel in the lives of people. So we are. We, we care about all those things. We, we care for them in a very distinctive way, uh, which is which is the distinction of the exclusive gospel of, of the person of Christ. So that's why I use that that little epistle because I think all those categories are covered there. So. Yeah, Dan, are we, we're not talking about ministering to half of the human. I mean, right. some of these issues they deal with um, the body, the the social constructs, or the economics, or you know, the different physical needs. We're talking about ministering to the whole person, recognizing the soul is eternal and that we need to address the soul because the physical aspects will change. So, so you, that's, that's what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Alex, did you want to add to that? So um, my, my background, and I said this in the, in the article, was uh, as a political uh, economist, and uh, that's my background. Um, praise the Lord, save me out of that. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the challenge is always defining the terms and understanding what is the end goal. Yeah. So, for example, for us, the reality is of our faith is we are trying to live out, obviously, what God has clearly stated is the purpose of the church. What is it that we are created for and in the gospel witness and how we are calling people to saving faith and, and all those things. So from a practical standpoint, the problem that you have when you now look from the political economical perspective, when we talk about poverty, so we have a war on poverty. Um, well, we understand from scripture, how do people become poor? Some of them might be because of laziness. Some of them might be because of their enslaved man to his particular sins. Some of them will be for injustice. So you have to understand what type of poverty are you looking for? And therefore, what you're looking at and as a church, as believers, how do we respond to that particular diagnosis as to why you're chronically in a situation of, of poverty, for example, if it is because you're living a very simple lifestyle, is it because there are oppressive laws and systems? How do we speak biblically about those? But how do we reconcile from scripture that the Lord says that there will be, uh, there should be no poor among you, but the poor will always be with you? Why? Because there are actual cycles. There are things that you will see. They are what we would see as uh, disasters that happen, that there's famine, that there's all things that will put people in poverty and the people of God responding biblically to meet the needs of people. Mm. So the problem that you get into is if you're going to say from a practical, we're going to put an end to poverty. So a lot of organizations and a lot of the organizations that are for social justice, their end goal is to be now equality of income, all of these things, and that's their goal. And they will now set certain policies to make that happen. So from a practical standpoint, that's why for us to get involved with them, our end goal is absolutely very different. Absolutely different. So that's what I would advise to people in the church 
If you understand what is the end goal, that's why we would see our methods are very different than what they're going to, to do. Their end goal is not for them to come to know Christ and now to delight in him and to now be those who are doing good deeds for the cause of Christ and advance the cause of Christ. They are trying to advance a social political agenda. Yes. That ultimately, there is no human being that will actually end that. Yeah. The only way that that ends is with Christ's return, right. period. Right. And there's no human agenda to change that. And I think we're seeing like a false dichotomy in this argument where some are saying, well, if your goal is not to end poverty, then you're not with us. You're demonized. Yes. And yeah. as well you as you don't love people and, and you can't actually preach the gospel and recognize that there are physical needs that are addressed, but that's not your main goal. No. Um, and they're saying, if you're not all for our goal, then you can have no part. We and, recognize the difference between that as the end goal and effects of preaching the gospel and living for Christ in this world. Yeah, it's all in. Or you cannot have biblical discernment. You have to be all in or, or you're out. Yeah, yes, good. Well, let me, let me change the subject a little bit here and look at it with this question. How should the church respond to social injustices? If they should respond at all. How should we respond? We got a bunch of pastors here who'd like to know that because um, they feel the pressure. They feel the pressure. You've got young people in the church that are saying, uh, maybe we should go out there and march, or maybe we should uh, start up a, a soup kitchen or other things, or maybe they've got that in place already. Is that the same thing as social justice that they're being heard uh, is, is uh, necessary in the church of Jesus Christ? As a musician, I, I think a lot of times what we try to do is to set the mood for the compassion of Christ. In a song, we try to do that through the, uh, the introduction of, of the piece, which might go about four measures or, or a little bit longer than that. Uh, but the real goal is to get to the melody or the, the key part of the song. Or for you homileticians, your introduction is really to uh, grab attention so that you can get to the point of your text. And for us, it's the gospel that we want to get to. Uh, but what we will do as a church in terms of ministry reflects the compassion of Christ as kind of the introduction and afterwards the application, but it's not the heart of the, the gospel that we want to get to. So I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's important for the church to be involved in reflecting the compassion of Christ and doing uh, compassion type ministries knowing that that's our introduction, that's our application, uh, but the heart is the gospel. I think the other, and tie into that, we recognize the definitions have been changed so dramatically. And so getting back to a biblical understanding and helping our people understand a biblical understanding of justice and the one who is just and the one who is righteous and reminding the authority does not lie within the social standing or structure or race or gender identification or whatever it may be, but there is a critical element to understanding that it is Christ who rules. It is God who is just and encouraging our young people to be faithful in understanding that clear difference. And as they relate to the things of the world, helping them understand the definitions and define them. That's why part of the magazine, Gary's element of his article, 
was focused on just redefining terms that should have been already defined. Uh, these terms that we know but are being used differently. And so helping to establish a clear understanding of the dictionary in which we use, I think is critically important and the authority of scripture to go along with. I would start with a different question, a different position. Uh, I think we might need to start with what is the mission and what is the message of the church? If we don't start there, then we're I mean, mission creep creeps in and begins to change the church. And that's what's happened historically throughout the ages, including American. It's happening right now. So what is the message that God has given the church? So we start with that, the gospel and the, and the presentation of the word of God and all that goes with that. And then that leads to our mission. What are we about? What do we do? And so with that in mind, then all these other issues come into focus. And we can begin to examine these other issues, compassion type ministries and so forth, in light of what God has called the church to do. And, and I would challenge your understanding of the New Testament, your study of the New Testament, if you believe that God sent the church out to change the world socially and, and culturally. That is, but we are citizens of this planet as individual Christians, as well as citizens of the kingdom. And therefore, we have an obligation to this planet as individuals. But I think I distinguish often between the individual Christian and the church. Uh, so what I would recommend with our people, if you want to be involved in a compassion ministry of some kind, there's numerous opportunities, numerous ministries. Get involved with them. Uh, go out there and do whatever the Lord would have you do. That's wonderful. But as a church, as a church, we have a different focus based upon a mission and a ministry and a message God has given us. And we try to stay laser focused on that. Because uh, it doesn't take much of a church historian to know how quickly it is we lose our footing and head the wrong direction. And that really brings up an, uh, maybe a parallel that I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I'd like you guys to address this, is we're talking about social justice. That's the terminology used today. But you back up and it's called social gospel. And then you also have liberation theology. So can you guys speak to uh, what, what are the similarities and maybe slight differences, but are we talking about the same thing? I mean, you've got very conservative churches, very strong, biblically directed churches that are taking this social justice on that might have said, oh, this is not social gospel. It's different. Is it different, though? I believe that the key issue is always back to our hermeneutic and our biblical interpretation. For many of people that find themselves in pain and suffering, um, it's very easy to develop a hermeneutic of experience and an emotionalism that drives and dictates everything that you do. So it's not exegesis, it's not eisegesis, it's not even Jesus. Um, <laughs> And, and that becomes the guiding hermeneutic mm -hmm. and is so challenging to now tell people, let's go back to scripture because everything that the, their whole lens is their experience. Uh, and, and therefore they began to reinterpret history, to reinterpret scripture, to, to say it differently. And the, the taking on a Marxist ideology and terminology for those of us who have studied Marxism, whether it be the, the, the peasant 
type of Marxism or the uh, industrial proletariat type, either like a Chinese version or a Soviet a Russian version, you begin to see that the language is always couched a combative nature. That's why, for example, you would say a war on poverty, a war on everything's a war. And what you have to deal with that mentality is that their whole concept is they believe in power structures and that we've had the power too long and for long enough. So in the redefining of all the terms, that's why they hijack our terms. That's why it's always those proverbial questions of you really can't say you love God and you don't do this. Or the proverbial of, you know, have you stopped beating your wife? And how do you answer that question when they're di dictating the terms of engagement and communication? But it is true. You will find in all of those different visions of what they think is now a new way of reinterpreting scripture. That's why they'll call it the hermeneutical circle, right? Or they'll come up with terms of God's preferential treatment for the poor. And I mean, who, who doesn't want to love the poor? You got to be someone heartless. You got to have no conscience. You got to have no God. But they're in many ways the ones that are godless. Mm -hmm. So every time you look throughout history, you will see a common theme is that there is a wanting to absolutely turn the power structure upside down. And that's what we see. And we're always then placed in the defense and almost having to go fight back for our scripture, for our terms, for what we believe truly the word of God says, because they're masters at combative language. Absolutely. And that's for decades, we have seen that in our universities. That's why it's so important to have Christian higher education today. And weak churches make weak institutions. Weak institutions will only weaken the church even more. Um, I, I hope that that, that helps to, to, to yeah. set some of that. But I do see many similarities throughout all of history. Mm -hmm. And it's just always an attempt to change our hermeneutic mm -hmm. and to always redefine our terms. Yeah. Thank you. I think going to your direct question, uh, I think this is identical to the social gospel dynamic. If you studied the social gospel dynamic going back to Schreiermacher in the, in the 1700s all the way through the 1920s, this is exactly what happened. Nobody denied at first the gospel. They said the gospel plus. The gospel plus the social gospel. It, it, if you read any literature outside of the our narrow circles, you're going to find the term whole gospel or full gospel. And the whole gospel or the full gospel is the social dimension added to the gospel of, of salvation together in one lump. And that's the full whole gospel that is being proclaimed now. That's exactly what happened in the social gospel. These folks are not denying the biblical gospel. They're adding to the biblical gospel and making it something else. In time, just with the liberal church of the past, the, the biblical gospel will fade and the social gospel will dominate. So I see identical dynamics. Yeah, and I think we're seeing parallels between what was happening with the fundamentalist modernist challenges today in this issue. The gospel is being threatened by this addition to it. And so we need to be aware this is not an outside issue. This is an internal issue that we need to guard against. Now, 
Um, Dr. Granados brought up something I'd like to maybe go down. And I want to remind you, if you do have questions, make sure you come up here so we can, we can have you ask your question. But you brought up the issue of, of power and power plays. And um, that also connects to this idea of intersectionality. Intersectionality may not be an issue. So I'd like you, if you, as you address it, to explain what intersectionality is. So you've got power, um, whether it's economic power or something else. You've got intersectionality, which really has to do with that power play. And then that ties into us as Christians, because we are viewed as one of those in this subject. We are not outside. They are coming for us. They are coming for us in this. Because if you are a white male, then you know that you're not favored right now. If you're not a white male, then you need to know that if you're a Christian, you have power. And so you guys want to address this ideas, the ideas in the power, uh, intersectionality, and, and um, what, what that means as Christians and where we fit into that scheme um, in these discussions. So I'll start. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more added to this as we talk about uh, some of these terms that are used on a regular basis, like intersectionality. Uh, there is this idea of uh, the power displacement, who has authority, and, and it even extends to the point, and you've heard, I'm certain, uh, within the secular society's definition, that uh, it's impossible for anyone other than a white male to be racist. Uh, the, that is all intersectionality. Uh, intersectionality is who has power by the world's definition. That is not who has the majority, but rather who has authority. And so in the way that this is viewed in the secular world and then trickling into the church is the white male is the one who makes the decisions, has made the decisions. Therefore, we have systemic racism and so forth in our institutions, such as the police force and so forth, our laws and so forth. That is all because it is a perceived power. And how that power then is manifested is varying degrees of gender and uh, gender identity and sexual identity and racism are all, or race rather, ethnicity, are all then divided out into the power struggle of intersectionality. And so who has more power? Uh, the white male has more power. So let's balance that out. Uh, and so the black lesbian would have the least amount of power because uh, being African-American as well as being gender uh, being a female rather, and then as well being one who is a lesbian, there would be the least amount of power associated with that group and the least ability to influence society and therefore bring about positive change. And so we need to balance that out. And according to uh, intersectionality, we need to balance out that power structure so that there is an equal playing field. And I'm, I could keep going, but I want some of these other guys to answer that as well. So. When it talks about power, we obviously know as, as Christians, it's the wrong metric. It's the world metric of, of measuring people. Uh, we know Jesus's measurement was not on power, but on servanthood. And that's the greatest. And, uh, and when we think of the parable of the talents, it wasn't about whether you had five or two or one. It's what you did with your five, two and one. And so I think uh, uh, thinking about it in terms of we all have privileges and advantages. Are we using it for the glory of God? 
And so it's flipping and, and switching the metric. Yeah, you can be a multimillionaire African-American lesbian woman and still have no power according to this idea. And you can be a very, very poor white male and still in this schema have more power than the billionaire African-American lesbian. One of the things that I will try to address when I uh, at a at the seminar that I'll give, when when our country went through a civil war, and um, during that time, through the Morale Act or the, the, the what we commonly call the land grant movement, the federal government got involved in actual higher education. Its mission was to create an education for what they call the toiling people, the working class, because they viewed Christian higher education as white elitist, white male elitist education. And their mission was to absolutely put an end to that education. And by putting an end to that education, put an end to the church. Because if you do not have, and you are beginning to actually erode the, the quality of man in the pulpit, if you start to white shame them and white Christian man shame them and you create a whole nother actual educational system, that's why the federal government and through the land grant movement began to compete with Christian higher education. We cannot outspend them, mm -hmm. right? Um, so in, in that respect, what you start seeing is a whole process of changing what they believe was a power structure if we are able to influence the church and the their academies, their institutions, we'll eventually exterminate them. Mm. When they couldn't quite do that, either by turning our schools liberal or not providing funding, then they went to credentialing. And that was the, the rise eventually of the actual accreditation process. That for many schools, they would struggle even financially to meet that accreditation. And sometimes even the demands of accreditation. But all that goes back really to what has been a governmental view of creating white shame, white male Christian shame, going back even to the time of the revolution, uh, I'm sorry, of, uh, of the civil war, but as an actual act of the federal government to get involved in higher education. That's a lot of the challenges that, that we face, which by the way, is what we see right now in our current administration. Mm -hmm even more full blown. But that's that concept of intersectionality and trying to address that. And part of those levels of intersectionality, we talked about the African-American female lesbian. We have not addressed the fact that those, because their structures are looking at who is the most oppressed, Christianity being at the top of our country's morals and values and leadership, that means that it now is a target. And so being a Christian means you've been empowered. And so that's the reason why the federal government will promote in the school systems Islam, but will not allow for Christianity be promoted. I think we have a question. I want to go ahead and share that. Yeah. 30 years ago, when we were studying uh, liberation theology, we read a lot of Guitarez. And he seemed to have an equal measure of Moses and Marx. My perception is that over the last 30 years in the transformation into social justice, 
and many churches embracing that, that there's a far less Moses and a great deal more Marx. And since Marx's is, Marxism is so much based in Darwinism and atheism, it seems that there's little hope going forward that the church can be set anywhere except as an antagonist in this story. What do we do? Great question. Preach the gospel. <laughs> the, the, uh, and I know what a, what a revelation. <laughs> the reality, I mean, those are the tools that we have. Um, but, but, but here's the thing. You're right. We went from a story of the Exodus because people wanted to hear about the Moses. And therefore, in, in liberation theology and social justice, you have to create the charismatic visionary leader. And it's almost you create a leader that is, has an, it's an infallible leader with an inerrant message. And in that aspect, that was how they would create Moses to be and to create what would be called the Exodus experience. But now as more and more, they have become more mainstream. Now they'll talk about a Christ and they have hijacked our Christ, our Jesus and our Jesus, not the, not the deity of Jesus, but a humanizing of Jesus as, Jesus as my homie. And in that sense, so humanizing him that he becomes a model for you to now be the radical Jesus. So they see Jesus as victor. And in that way, the Jesus that they present is a very human or a humanist Jesus. We need to present the true gospel and a clear message of that gospel, which is still actually the power and authority that we have. Well, I mean, what other message do we have? And I think that's the challenge where people want to find another message to somehow try to win people. The reality is we, it, this message has been the same message that has been utilized for people to, to come to faith throughout all of the centuries. And when we try as a church to come up with a new message, if we try to come up with Jesus plus something, and that would be the thing, Jesus plus, you now have to be out there protesting or else you're not a good Christian. You have to be out there making sure that there's no poor among you. You have to make sure that if, if, if at any time anything has happened to anybody, the suffering, the hurting, that you have to go and do that. That is actually something you must do to gain salvation. And the reality is no, is still a works-based salvation. So that might be very simple, but I'm just still racking my brain. What other message as a messenger of the gospel can I come up with? The moment that I subtract something is not the gospel anymore. The moment that I add something to it is not the gospel anymore. So I'm still back to what? Preach the word. Preach the gospel. Because that's the only thing that has power and authority. Now, if you want to talk, I know how to manipulate and people and all that kind of stuff. Yes, that comes natural. I got a pagan education at UCLA. They taught me how to manage people and circumstances to get what I want. But the reality is not about what we want. It's what does the Lord require of us? 
That's what the reality of Titus, right? Why we go to that. I mean, that is an example of how do you live out in a pagan context in, in, a, in a place that people were basically, you know, guns for hire or bows and arrows or whatever it was, swords. And basically a place where if you wanted to go and plot a good overthrow of a government, that's where you would go. And you would find the most vile of people, right? When Paul gets run out of Thessalonica, what did they do? They went and they found the evil people in the marketplace. They're always there. But what is always the solution? Preach the gospel. Clear, unashamed. Just be faithful to that. I think the scriptures would have us understand the times we're living in. One of the interesting things that has drawn me to the book of Titus, they understood the times in which they were living in. They, they were clearly defined, defined biblically, also defined by their own poets who who acknowledged the, the, the circumstances that they were in. But then they addressed, Paul addressed those issues by challenging the, the people individually to be gospel obedient people. And then he set in order, that little word there in the first chapter, set in order, is to identify the problem, correct the problem, and do a thorough, clean job of it. It's a triple compound word there in, in, in Titus. But um, we often go to Titus simply to find out how to, how to have good elders in the church, but, but we don't go far enough or really begin, need to begin with Titus chapter 3. But the whole scheme there, uh, God our Savior, Christ our Savior permeates the book. God is established as the one who is, is the authority. The gospel is exclusive to Christ. But it is as believers are reordering their lives around, around Scripture, so what Paul does is, is challenge the believers to engage a gospel life lived out among the people, one-on-one, one-on-one, life-on-life in that culture. And as you work your way through that process, you understand the proper role of government. Chapter 2, you understand the proper role of, of employers and employees in the end of, end of chapter 2, uh, chapter uh, and then earlier in chapter two, then, as he has put into uh, priority the order of the family, one of the things that, that um, um, BLM and, and other, uh, and even Marxism, they destroy the family unit. And Paul is reinforcing there the proper role of older men teaching younger men, older women teaching younger women, uh, women to love their children, to love their husbands. That's putting back in order the family structure that was ordained by God beginning back in Genesis chapter chapter 2. And so it's, it's, it's putting things, everything in order. Everything is in disorder, disarray, and this, these things thrive in chaos. And we tend to become distracted by that chaos as believers, and we, we react and then we, we feel vulnerable and then we want to join into these movements because somehow we feel compelled to, to buy into their narrative when what we need to be doing is, is, is reaffirming the nature of the gospel and how it reorders our lives individually. As we get our lives in order, um, we impact, we reorder uh, everything in our lives, but it's, it's the impact of the gospel um, and, and it was put together so well, we mess up the gospel, we add to it or take to it. The gospel is exclusivity of Christ. And we talk about the blessed hope in, in, in chapter 2, verse 13. Not only that is a blessed hope for the believer, but we know when Christ returns, he is also the judge of the earth. And so he is the ultimate, he is the ultimate standard of justice and, and will mete out 
we're not going to be able to to solve every injustice that we experience on the face of the earth but but we do have a responsibility as individual believers and to an extent as as the the the, the church is 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 preaching and declaring the gospel that we are adorning the doctrine of christ but but things will only be made right, right, ultimately when Christ comes. And, and so that is the authority. The scripture is our authority. God is our authority. But what is happening is we are trying to, they're trying to establish themselves through these ideologies, a different authority. We can't succumb to that. I think we can use the, uh, the, the force of the critical race theory and judo it towards the gospel. For example... <laughs> Uh, and, and judo is taking their force and using it uh, in reverse uh, because their great exchange is the exchange of power. Well, we saw that in Romans 1 when they exchanged the glory of God for creepy crawly things uh, as they suppressed the knowledge of God in their unrighteousness. Uh, the, the, the greater exchange is the exchange of Christ's righteousness for my sin. And if, if, uh, if, if we can use that for a greater definition and clarity of the gospel, uh, they also talk about canceling culture, but the Romans talks about canceling sin. And so we're, we're able to say, well, what's, what's the better thing to cancel here? Uh, the, 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 uh, the movement of a culture or the heart of it, which comes from individual sin. And, and the idea of a redistribution of power uh, solves nothing. It only makes other people bossier over somebody else instead of reconciliation, which is the heart of what Christ did and taking care of the enmity we had against God and, and bringing that reconciliation, which is, which is what happens also reflected in the church. And so I think uh, even the terms of the critical race theory can be uh, used as in reverse to help illustrate the gospel. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have a question up front here. Okay, so... I was listening to a program on Rudy, Moody Radio a few weeks ago, and they were discussing the issue of whether we should continue to raise our children to be colorblind, as many of us were raised, or whether there was any merit to raising our children to see color and recognize different strengths and weaknesses in different ethnicities. And... One of the presenters on the program made a point that I'd never heard before, and I thought it was interesting. And she said, um, the problem with complete and total colorblindness is similar to the problem with so-called gender blindness among the new feminist movement, where people claim that there really is no difference between male and female. Men and women can do everything the same. There are no strengths and weaknesses. There is no complementary nature everybody's the same and the person said that there's a danger among people who are too colorblind in that they do not recognize the cultural and ethnic heritages of different nationalities and we should allow our children to see color in a complementary nature because god made people differently and with different abilities so i was wondering what you thought about that is there any merit to teaching our children to recognize differences among races or should we strive to continue to teach them that all humans are fundamentally one blood and the same and there is essentially no difference in our nature in addressing at least part of uh, the question one of the 
great joys of the church is that we're united in the spirit, Ephesians chapter 4, built on the theology of the first three chapters, but we're all different, and there is a distinction in our service to the Lord. There is differences in the way that we serve the Lord, but there is one gospel, there is his word, and there is one church, and there is seven one statements, three different terms that are used for one following that in Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, it's an amazing passage of scripture to study. And as we do that, we begin to recognize that there are distinctions that do exist. I would change one thing about the statement that was, uh, or the question, and that is that word race. I think it's better to use the word ethnicity because we are one race. And but we have a variety of ethnicities. And we see that same demonstrated in eternity when every tribe and every tongue will sing praise to the Lord and will worship the Lord in unity. Uh, that unity is not the sameness. There is the same gospel, of course, uh, but there is not a sameness in the fact that we are all identical to one another. And so I think it is wise for us, and my kids are a testament to this, uh, it is wise for us to have a great, wide-reaching uh, exposure uh, for our kids to see the different cultures and ethnicities and to engage in the richness of it. If you've ever worshipped in a different country, uh, I remember I was 13 years old. I was in Brazil and uh, did not speak Portuguese, was in a tribal church and just singing and praising the Lord together, those who know Christ as Savior. There is a richness to that, uh, much different than our stoic whiteness uh, for those of us who are there. And it's a joyful thing. And I think it is wise for us to celebrate it, but it is wise for us to make the distinction of those who follow Christ and those who do not follow Christ. I think uh, in, in my, my thinking, the answer is not colorblindness, but color celebration, because as, as you referred to, that's what we're going to be doing in heaven, uh, in our diversity, uh, unified by the gospel of Christ. I, I know a, a lot of times we think just having one kind of Stepford Christian kind of uh, perspective uh, is, is, uh, is the solution and is, is kind of a false unity. Uh, you know, people would people would say, well, why do you have a Chinese church? You know, why don't you, uh, you know, you should be all coming to our church, which is multicultural, which, you know, we can we respond, well, why don't you come to our church and, uh, and learn another language and, and come and minister? Uh, but I really think it's, uh, the answer is color celebration. These are interesting questions. Our God who made us, made us to have different tones of skin. And of course, he's the one that caused us to have different languages, right? I mean, it was not our choice. We were scattered. And uh, he's done all these things for us. And so for us to um, begrudge them is not, a, is not a healthy thing. I think the problem, the Bible calls it the sin of prejudging somebody. And it doesn't just have to do with the color of our skin. It has to do with economics and other things. When we prejudge people, that is sin. And we need to confess that and uh, make that right. And so I, I think that we don't need to be blind. I, it is akin to the gender blindness that we see today. Um, but we do need to teach our children discernment. And we are different, 
And that is what discernment does, is it recognizes differences. We need to recognize there are differences, and not all people are trustworthy. Not all people uh, would you want to, um, you know, give the keys to your home to. Not all people are uh, godly. And so, but that doesn't necessarily tie in like Marxism does to a whole group of people. All people of this ethnicity are this. All poor people are that. All Republicans are this. When we get involved in that kind of group think, we have now set the stage for Marxism, which doesn't look at the individual the way our God does. It just kind of stamps everybody as the same as being one group or um, party of some sort. So. Well, and going back to terms and defining things, scripture calls this the, the sin of partiality or favoritism. Yes. Not so much in itself just racism, but it does acknowledge differences among people. And therefore, how do we, it, what it warns you is judging, showing partiality, favoritism, whether that be of someone's skin tone, what color, whether that be someone's social status. It was always trying to address that, but it does actually talk about the differences of people. You know, growing up, uh, I mean, I, I remember when I first came to the U.S., 10 years old, and someone started trying to explain to me what it was, uh, asking me, how did it feel to be a minority? And I was trying to figure out, when did that happen? Did it happen, like, somewhere in, in, in flight? <laughs> or, you know, um, I don't know, as soon as I landed and I cleared customs, when did I become a minority? And I, I just really struggled, and I said, well, I was Colombian, and we're all the majority. <laughs> We're all Colombian. So I, again, trying to understand that, but that was the thing, people trying to label you something mm -hmm. or the thing of growing up uh, um, ethnic and always feeling like uh, we would always give the analogy of if, if, you, if you start hanging around these people, then you're, the, you're giving up a piece of your pie and therefore that you were somehow losing your, your ethnic distinctiveness. And the more and more I thought about that, and the celebration of all of the mosaic, of the beauty of the full of the body of Christ, I just had to start realizing, wait, it's not wrong to like apple pie. And I don't have to choose that I now lose a slice of my pie, right? It's like, no, I get to have flan and apple pie. <laughs> what an awesome life. And to celebrate all of that in the all of what the church and the body of Christ really is, and to learn to appreciate and celebrate all of that, rather than always feeling better with that power structure and struggle, is that it's always about you're losing something rather than gaining something. Yeah. Always the shaming of something rather than the celebration of something. And that's where I think it becomes very critical for us to do that, mm -hmm. and therefore to celebrate that. We do know how the story ends. Right? And we are all going to be there, people from so many different backgrounds uh, and, and, and all of that. And therefore, that's to be celebrated throughout eternity. And maybe it's just, I like to do it right now. Yeah. All right. We don't have to wait, actually, till heaven. We can enjoy that right now, all of who we are uh, in the mosaic of, of the Lord. And therefore, to celebrate it rather than be ashamed of it. Amen. But, uh, but uh, thank you for, for sharing that Amen. for sure. We have another question. 
I think I'm hearing you fellows talking about behavior rather than what you look like. Now tell me, is this passage too simple or is it, does it mean what it sounds like it means? Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a hope, a reason for the hope that lies within you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they see, when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your conduct, your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Is that too simple for this question? Or is that passage in First Peter sufficient for this question? Yeah, again, we come back to what are we minister to? We minister to the whole person. Um, we know that our Savior Jesus saves people from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation, and we're thankful for that. He saves the soul. Although we're not Platonists, we believe that he saves the whole person, including the glorified body. You think about that. When your body is renewed and glorified and all of the things that are messed up in your body right now will be fixed in heaven, he will not strip us of what he gave to us in this world. I hope I'm a little taller, but I think I'll probably <laughs> probably be Hispanic. I don't see why he would take that away. And I don't think that he'd take it away from all of us. Is that, is, that is a part of our being, who he made us physically, but he saved our soul, and that's the whole man. And so I think part of who we are is how we conduct our lives. It is who we are before our God, the conduct that we perform. It is through the conduct of our lives that God uses us and has changed us and made us new creatures. And so that conduct comes out in that way. I often say that one of the, one of the challenges in, in speaking with unbelievers, obviously in presenting the gospel, our whole life is oriented to get the most that we can out of this life. And therefore, um, we will be willing to step over our own mothers and grandmothers to get as much as we can out of this life. Because the 70, 80, 90 years in this world is as good as it gets as for an unbeliever. Because what awaits them is eternal damnation. For us as believers, the perspective is very different. The 70, 80, 90 years in this world is as close to H-E double toothpick as we'll ever get, <laughs> right? And therefore, what we are living for is for eternal life and to worship God so that our identity is always bound to Christ and for eternity and where we're going to be. Therefore, that orientation and the defense that we give and the way that we talk about, that's when unbeliever is going to just try to get as much as they can out of this life. That's why they're trying to turn the power structure. That's why they do want to live their best life right now. This is not our best life. This is just a prelude for yeah. eternal life. This is a prelude for the fact that we will all be there and people from all different tongues and different nations and all those that will be worshiping the true God. But our identity is found in Christ. Yeah, I might look a little bit more tan. Yes, I might be able to speak other languages. Maybe I do put grammatically the cart before the horse. 
and uh, I'll let you think about that for your grammar people. But he, here's the thing that we can have all those great experiences, but what ultimately ties us together is Christ and our identity bound in him. And therefore, when we give an account to that, that it is as simple as those passages, but yet as complex as those passages. What are we trying to actually proclaim to people? That there's more to this, more to life than this, than those 70, 80, 90 years here. That there is eternal life and a wonderful bliss where, yes, there's no more poverty, right? There's no more measurements of waistlines. Nobody's going to ask you how tall you are. How much do you weigh? Nobody's going to ask you. All it is going to be blissful people, the mosaic of all of what God has redeemed, worshiping him. And it is absolutely as beautiful and as simple as that. But we have to go and be faithful to proclaim and give a defense to that, right? Um, we have to. We absolutely must go do that. That is our commission. That is our duty. That is our privilege. And uh, there's nothing we get to take with us except the brothers and sisters who we have either our spiritual children. Yes? That's what we get to take the spiritual children, those who we would share the gospel with that have come to saving faith. I think your verse goes back well, well to our mission and message once again. So it's very easy to get sidetracked by all these things that are going on in the world. And we forget that the scriptures tell us we're calling people out of a perverted generation. So it's a very different thing. So we need to go back to scripture. We need to start there. We need to find our foundation and our theology from scripture, not from the culture. And so when we, we read verses like that, we find out here's what God's called us to do and be. And, uh, and so that's very important. I, I like that passage of scripture and many others. Just, just go through the New Testament. What are, we, what are we called to do and be? What's our message? And uh, instead of getting sidetracked, it's very easy right now in, in this uh, culture, the CRT culture, to get all wrapped up in all these podcasts and all these books and all these messages. And that becomes our, uh, our theology, if we're not careful. We're reacting to that. Uh, we need to get, we need to not react to that. We need to have the message that that penetrates that, and we have it. And we don't have to be scholars in these areas to do that. We are lights, and that, I think right now more than ever, I, and in some ways it's, it's a better time. Uh, we are a light of the world, and the world needs a light, and there's nobody else has it. Uh, we have a solidarity that no one else has. Uh, let's not be ashamed of that. Let's, let's pour that out there and not not get all wrapped up in CRT. Let's get wrapped up in the gospel in the presentation of, of God's word. Amen. Amen. I think we have one more question. My voice might be a little shaky. I'm nervous. Um, you might have already answered this question. Uh, going back to what you were talking about, intersectionality, I'm confused about that. I don't know much about that. But would you say that there are parts of intersectionality that are valid that we need to repent of? Um, that but we as pastors addressing that to the people in our churches who, you know, you had said about driven by, they are driven by emotions and, but aren't some of their emotions valid? Uh, for example, um, part of the gospel is repentance. Um, hasn't there been some abuse, racism? Um, haven't we prejudged culture 
and culturally shamed people. Um, and for example, I was brought up that interracial marriage is complete sin and will unsave you. Uh, and for, do, shouldn't we publicly maybe address some of these things and without going too far with feeding their labeling everybody, everything kind of, so I guess that's, I'll leave that question kind of there. All right. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think we don't have to be shy about saying, yes, we have sinned and we have done bad things. We've made bad choices. Uh, but scripture talks about individual choices, uh, not, uh, not a racial, racial choice or a systemic choice of, 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 of a group of people, white people, for example. It talks about the fact that we are systemic sinners. And so our real issue is sin. And that sin manifests itself in a lot of ways. We are, we are not uh, free of, of these things. We have done these things. We need to repent of them individually. And, it, and if we're in a church that's done it, we need to repent. And we need to, to follow the scriptural teachings on these things. So, yes, these are issues. Let's not, let's not say, no, we've never done that. We have done that because we're sinners. And, but, but we recognize it. We repent of it. We turn from it. And we change it. And that's and we change it in a way that scripture tells us to change it. Um, one of the things when we got more into that intersectionality and critical race theory, one of the things that I started to talk about was that in some places, uh, if we are going to speak very strongly against that, that we actually had to recognize the original critical race theories. And that was to create a in many ways, eugenetics, uh, white supremacist views that, that were uh, promoted within the churches and, uh, and to, in many ways, to recognize that. So if, if we go back, for example, to some of the writings in, uh, during the Civil War, and particularly what would be written by Robert L. Dabney, and for many people who would believe Robert L. Dabney was one of the great American theologians, and in, in some occasions, he would go and speak very eloquent theologically, but yet he would go then into the Commonwealth of Virginia and speak there in the House of Commons and would talk, for example, about the ecclesiastical inequality of the Negro. And, and perhaps Robert L. Dabney as well, one of the most prolific writers that would be labeled an actual racist uh, or create those type of ideas. And some of those things, sadly, have not been completely done away with. Um, there are places still that you can go in, in certain communities and find that people are very much racist. I've never been racially profiled. I've always been blessed to just fit the description of who they're looking for. <laughs> um, and, and sometimes it's hard to explain that to people because, I mean, Look at me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dressing like I'm out there gangbanging or something like that, right? But sadly, there are still pockets where does this exist. Ignorance and sinfulness still exist. Um, now, how systemic that is? In some places, yes, sinners do get together and sinners do pass laws. Sinners do create certain systems. How systemic that is, that's probably what we can discuss. How much do we label everything and now lump everybody together? I think that's the, that's the fallacy. That's the danger of doing that. Uh, but how do we really address and talk about, about those issues? So yes, there's times where you do have to repent. We do have to repent over the fact that there were times and sections of our churches and our communities where those things did happen. 
and sadly, they still do, right? There are places that I will probably won't be invited, right? I, I was sharing that, you know, I was, I was standing next to someone at a store in, in, uh, in Alabama, and they told me that, you know, when, when our president gets elected, he's going to send you home, boy. I'm like, wow, free trip to California. <laughs> um, but he doesn't know he's talking to a fellow Republican. <laughs> he just saw the color of my skin, right? Um, but, but those things still do happen. And, and, and sadly, we do have to address those. But I think you just have to go uh, address that. But there's always going to be ignorance. There's always going to be sinful people. The solution is still the gospel Amen. and nothing more. Amen. Well, I want to thank you, brothers. We've run out of time, so we won't be able to get to the last question. But make sure you go to Gary Gilley's forum because you can get those questions answered that you want to. And don't forget these critical race theory um, uh, articles that Gary has blessed the church with in writing. He's got them all compiled for you there to take one and uh, go through that. I want to thank all of the panel guests that have uh, uh, answered so many questions for us and been so helpful for us, not only here, but in their writing of the articles. They would love to uh, uh, talk to you and ask you questions or answer your questions. Um, and we, we are getting ready to go to lunch. And so maybe you might be blessed to have one of them at your table and sit and, and talk to them. Just let them eat a little bit so they can get some nourishment. Um, but let me... This this will this is recorded and it will be available. Give us some time, probably towards the end of the month of July. Uh, it will be available on the IFC website through our sermon audio account. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Dan Fredericks if you would just close this time in prayer. Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity we have to be together and to be able to discuss these issues openly. We thank you for our Lord. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the heart change that he does by grace through repentance of our sin before a holy God, through the reception of salvation and the obligation and the privilege, the opportunity that we have to live the doctrine of Christ before the world in which we live, that we might touch lives, that we might display Christ, that we might lead others to know him, that all the turmoil in their life, all the sin that they see in the world, but that sin in their own heart can receive forgiveness through faith in him. Father, help us to be faithful to the gospel. Help us to live exemplary lives. Father, convict us when sin creeps into our own hearts through our attitudes towards others, that we would repent and change. We might love others as Christ loves. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.